Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jane Satterfield about her poem, Letter to Emily Bronte, which appears in issue 23 of The Common. Jane Satterfield's most recent book is Apocalypse Mix, which was awarded the Autumn House Poetry Prize selected by David St. John. She's the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Fellowship, the 49th Parallel Award for Poetry from Bellingham Review, the Ludbury Poetry Festival Prize, and more. New poetry and essays appear in Diagram, Ecotone, Orion, Literary Matters, The Missouri Review, The Pinch, Tupelo Quarterly, and elsewhere. She is married to poet Ned Balbo and lives in Baltimore, where she is a professor of writing at Loyola University, Maryland. Jane Satterfield, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Great to talk to you, Emily. Uh, Would you set the scene for our conversation, just describe where you're living and calling from now? Absolutely. I'm in Baltimore, um, just uh, about a mile or so inside the the city line. And I live in a neighborhood called Rogers Forge, which is a lovely post-war sort of suburban community with a beautiful canopy. (laughs) Oh, that sounds nice. Um, so before we go further, I have to com- confess that we have a secret connection that you do not know about, <laughs> uh, which is that uh, just before the pandemic in February 2020, um, I was at the Vermont Studio Center for a residency. Um, and, you know, people write their names on the studios where they've been, like artists and writers will write their names on the studio. And uh, your name was on the studio door. So I think that we shared a studio at, at VSC at different times. <laughs> That's wonderful. That was such a beautiful studio. The the um, you know there was that nice armchair where you could just sit and look out yeah. at the Guion River um, and see the ducks sort of float by, and um, I thought that was really beautiful. But interestingly, um, another poem that was in the common, the totem uh, poem um, that appeared in issue eighteen, is one that I wrote in that studio. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Great wow. coincidence. I love, I love knowing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was such a nice time there. I, that was my first ever really like a real residency and I had such a good time, but it was, it was February. So it was very cold. The river was almost totally frozen over and there would be like little fisher sort of creatures climbing around the, the river. Um, yeah, it was lovely. And I, I did, it was so cold that I was like, well, there's nothing to do, but write, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and make your yeah. way to the barn to get coffee. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. And then I was looking at the names on the door and I was like, I recognize that name from the common. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah. Um, so I would love for you to start us off with a reading. Would you read your poem from issue 23 for us? Sure. Letter to Emily Bronte. 
I'm writing this from lockdown on a day when the dogwood throws out its dose of darker pink. The schoolyard across the street is wreathed in yellow caution tape. I'm weighing uncertain evidence on vectors and runner strides, what practice motion keeps us safe, what physics of distancing. Emily, you were no stranger to contagion in a town of trash heaps and overflowing pits. A fog-bound pestilence vapored through low-lying towns, typhus and TB ravaged boarding schools where pedagogues punished the body to instruct the soul. You watched your mother's swift decline, composed a stoic soul. Once I lived within a few miles of those heathered moors where you worked out plots that swirled around the heart's tenancy. I remember high, cold clouds, the wind wild at withens. Today I practice patience, tipping teaspoons full of beaten egg into batter. Of my word count, I'm not proud. Fikita, Sumatran rhino, Clarion Island wren are on the verge of vanishing. And from our tiny windows on the world, who wouldn't wish to be each image of rewilding? Dolphins freewheeling in the absent wakes of Vaporetti, herds surging former squares of commerce. No matter if some of the stories are spliced from other seasons and settings. Emily, you held on to hardiness, walked and walked in whatever weather. A woman who could self-cauterize a sheepdog's bite knows fire is good medicine. Dithering makes the mind a desert. I could use your audacity, the refuge of a stubborn vision. Thank you so much for reading that. I wonder, how did you decide on, on Emily Bronte for this poem? Have you written poems like this before where you're sort of addressing someone specifically? Um, yes. I, I've always had an interest in epistolary poems. Um, I wrote a, a piece a number of years ago for um, the Mentor and Muse anthology that Blaise Falconer and Helena Mesa and Beth um, Martinelli put together where poets respond to other poets' work and, and write about a genre or a tradition. And I was thinking about, um, at that point, I was thinking about Wilfred Owen's letters from the trenches, um, and also Charlotte Bronte's letters. And the title of that piece was called Lucifer Matches, which is the name of a brand of match. But it's also a phrase that Charlotte's husband used to talk about the prospects of letter writing, how, how they can like reveal secrets that are dangerous for others to discover. And so you think of, of letters as this kind of form that allows you to um, have a kind of chatty domestic conversation that also launches out toward larger public issues. And it's a form that allows, um, I think, the writer to uh, kind of like almost fall into um, secrets that they can they can reveal. Um, so it's interesting in that way. It's both like relaxed and urgent. And um, I started writing this when um, it was, uh, I was taking a few minutes break um, during online teaching in the spring of 2020 while my students were writing. So I kind of, you know, we all went behind our little black screens and I just looked outside my window at the dogwood tree that was throwing out its, its petals. And I think a lot of us remember this sense um, from lockdown that, that spring was somehow more real or more magical um, because we had had to slow down to observe it, um, I think, in ways that, that we weren't always um, doing when we were going about our lives in the before times. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. Do you feel like there was something you like you learned or discovered specifically in writing to Emily Bronte as a person, like in comparison or just, just from, from that action of doing that? Well, I've been working on a book of poems that center around Emily Bronte and, and her okay. life um, and her sisters and her rep and um, the sort of lives and afterlives of the Brontes in general. And so um, that it's a kind of like... Um, people often talk very negatively about about project books. And I've just always had an interest in the Bronte sisters and said, I'm going to finally write that book about Emily. Um, <laughs> she's such an interesting figure in terms of like how little biographical information we actually have about her. There's, you know, the poems she wrote, which are truly amazing, the novel Wuthering Heights, and then a handful mm -hmm. of diary papers that she wrote in tandem with her sister. So anything else that she might have written, whether she was working on a second novel or whether she had other tales, um, like Charlotte's Juvenalia um, survived, but Emily's did not. So and Emily's, if she wrote any journal-like material, that doesn't exist either. So she's a kind of like mysterious figure that people kind of project their own ideals and fears about um, women artists onto the little we know about her life. So those are the kinds of things that I, I've been thinking about with um, the, the book. And also I'm interested in, in her um, environmentalism. I think of her as a kind of proto-environmentalist um, she was a, you know, sort of amateur naturalist, spent a long time walking the moors. And certainly her, her poetry and, and Wuthering Heights are uh, full of, you know, botanical and geological detail that shows that mm -hmm. she was not only a keen observer of the natural world, but also that she was in touch with um, the uh, sort of theories um, of her time. So, um, that's sort of like the backdrop to, to this book. And um, the town where she lived was an industrial town. We think of it as kind of a, you know, um, place that's really like out there in the wild in the moors um, in Yorkshire. And the town is mostly a tourist town now. Um, and the factories are not there the way they were during her time. Um, and it was a town that was filled with the, the, the wells. There was a graveyard next to her house in Howarth Parsonage. And so many bodies were buried there that the wells were actually quite polluted. Um, oh. And uh, in fact, her father had a uh, survey of the water done um, after, um, you know, Emily's death. Uh, the wells had nothing to do with her, her TB, but typhus was a problem in the town. And uh, he, he worked and advocated to um, have, have the water system cleansed. So I think that idea of the, you know, the, the backdrop of the book and then the sense of living in a time of contagion um, mm. was something that, that made, made the poem sort of unfold for me. Yeah, it's just funny just hearing you talk about that, all the sort of unfortunate parallels with what's, you know, with the pandemic and, you know, these water supply issues that have been happening lately. Yeah. And yeah. certainly, I think, um, you know, because uh, so many of us were thrown into, you know, working on screen as we worked remotely and going to our screens to, you know, be in touch with the wider world that we couldn't access. There were all those stories of how the animals emerged in our absence that I found absolutely fascinating. 
um, beautiful pictures of uh, creatures gathering in the, you know, former places of commerce, (laughs) Um, you know, as if the world finally re-belonged to them again. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of the the images, it was later discovered that some of these images were, were accurate and some had been kind of spliced together from other Mm -hmm. other moments and I kind of thought um, that was interesting in terms of the way it speaks to our our desire in in many ways for um, a more ecologically sound world yeah absolutely I really love those moments in the poem um you know, so much of the pandemic felt sort of universal in a way, like like thinking about disease vectors and the droplets when someone's running. Like as soon as I read that, I could picture the diagrams I had looked at (laughs) to see how I should be running outside in a way that wouldn't affect other people. Um, Exactly. And, and you know, I could picture the sort of pictures of the dolphins and hearing about those those sort of rewilding moments. Um, But obviously it's a, you know, it's a very personal poem as well. So there's sort of those moments of universality and then the moments of, of sort of personal you know, struggle or personal goals or or habits. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, like, as much as it is possible for a poem, could you describe or summarize what this poem is, is about to you? I think it's about, I think it's about very much what, what you just eloquently said, the way of finding those parallels and, and speaking to a figure, um, uh, through history about the shared human condition. And certainly, um, you know, one of the, uh, there's the line in the poem that you watched your mother's swift decline composed a stoic soul. And the Brontes, um, the Bronte sisters, mothers died when, when they were very young, um, about um, a year and a half after the youngest daughter, Anne was born. And so they were, you know, motherless and in some ways kind of like feral children (laughs) um, (laughs) in that way and, and very creative. And I think a lot of their creativities springs out of, out of the sense of um, trying to make a whole world for themselves. So I think that, that kind of desire to, to connect with, um, the struggles of other female artists is kind of very much uh, behind this poem. And that ambition to like, I, I think Emily's um, sense of, of fortitude, personal fortitude um, was something I found really admirable. Um, you know, you mentioned the the runners vectors and thinking of the diagram. And of course it was such a terrible, I think, experience for, for us to think like, you know, you, you couldn't sit next to people in a restaurant, you know, you know, one week you're having these, um, you know, communal dinners and sharing, you know, chips and salsa and a pitcher of margaritas. And then, you know, two weeks later, like everything's closed and you, you don't want to get too close to your neighbor even, and you can't visit your family members. And I think, that feeling of isolation that the Bronte sisters navigated as part of their social class and as part of being women um, in the Victorian era is is something I found really, really kind of moving in a way. It's a way of exploring we're not alone across time. Yeah, it's it's so funny because the when I was at Vermont Studio Center having those huge communal meals with all these other writers and artists and like communing with people about our work and and then I basically got home and it was locked down. <laughs> <laughs> so the, that that experience that you're talking about, yeah, it was a very stark divide for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would love to know is there is there any line or aspect of this poem that you would want to sort of draw our listeners' attention to something 
um, you hope they don't miss or, or something that surprised you when you were writing it? I think one, the, there are so many uh, sort of zippings back and forth between, um, you know, biographical detail of, of the Brontes' lives, um, Emily's life in particular. And then the poem kind of moves very quickly in its center from thinking about my own visit to um, Haworth Parsonage and the Moors. Um, and Withens is a collapsed farmhouse that's uh, about a mile um, walk from Haworth Parsonage. And that's a walk that the sisters took on a, on a regular basis. It's a beautiful setting. But then the poem mm-hmm. like jumps into the sudden, uh, today I practice patience, tipping teaspoonfuls of beaten egg into batter. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was uh, that, that sort of uh, revelation in the poem surprised me. I was um, baking you know, the uh, copycat wedding cake um, from Meghan and Harry's wedding, um, <laughs> lemon elderflower. And it yeah. required you to um, like literally put teaspoons full of egg. And, you know, um, it, it was it was kind of a revelation in terms of thinking about Emily was a baker. She's the one that did the domestic chores in the house while her sisters um, went out and took teaching jobs and governess jobs. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, there's often legends surrounding her of her, her baking for villagers. Um, and since her father's a, a cleric, she would have had to prepare materials for tea. So there's that, that connection, but it's also Mm -hmm. that feeling of the pandemic, um, teaching us a kind of patience or demanding a kind of patience, um, and, uh, that 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 moment in the poem kind of surprised me, as did the as did the ending. Um, thinking about, um, you know, there were so many stories of people. Um, I'm learning a new language. I'm running a marathon, like all these <laughs> ambitious projects. And then there's were stories of of people who are just struggling to get through the day to school their children to cook three meals um, mm-hmm. you know to keep the family going while people are, are working multiple jobs in the same household I know my <laughs> brother yeah. and sister-in-law like shared a card table in their bedroom because they had three children oh at home you know um, so there's all kinds of stories like that and I think um, you know, the feeling that we should be doing something else or should always be moving was something I was also trying to come to terms with um, in this poem. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. That leads great, perfectly into my next question. Um, you're talking about how the, this poem sort of zips back and forth um, between these different subjects. And, and I was sort of wondering about that because, of course, I, I think it all, all works together perfectly and, and comes together wonderfully. But I wonder if when you're writing, you ever hesitate to sort of move around like that and bring in so many different elements? Or, or, or do you just like learn to trust that instinct after a while? That's a great question. And I think I I think I do learn to, to trust that. Um, I kind of like a poem that moves back and forth between registers and time frames. Um, and 
it, the great thing about the form of a poem is when you're working in the space of a lyric um, or you're working in the space of a letter or a dramatic monologue, you can kind of do that. It's really, a cha- it's much more challenging, I think, in terms of um, essay writing where um, you're setting up a narrative chronology and the reader can get completely lost because you've made mm. so many like leaps. Um but yeah, and there are, um, I have other poems in, in this book that I'm working on that stay more firmly in the historical moment and in, in Emily's voice. Um, but this one, I felt like the form of the letter. Um, and it also, Emily, I think I mentioned earlier that um, Emily wrote a series of diary papers um, with her in tandem with her sister, Anne, and they were kind of, I think, imitating Byron's, you know, letters and journals, and they would mm-hmm. write them on their birthdays, and they would put them away with the idea that they'd be time capsules that they would get out <laughs> several years later. Um, and see if what they had hoped for, predicted, had come true. Um, They're very moving, but they also zap right back and forth between um, what's literally going on at the table and what conversations they're having with Tabby, their their, um, servant, who's telling them they need to get up and peel the potatoes, and then (laughs) like making the connection to Robert Peel standing for parliament. Um, so in some wow. ways, I think I also wanted to, to kind of pay tribute to um, those, those, the form of the diaries there. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so I, I'm a very much a prose writer. And so I'm always so curious about how poets play with, the, you know, the sort of elements that, that I think about less. I'm thinking about like line breaks and stanzas, but also, you know, rhythm and sound and those kind of things. Do you have any kind of set process when it comes to deciding those things or do they come naturally or does it sort of depend on the poem? Most, I think they do come organically from a poem. Usually I will have, um, often I will begin a poem with a title and a first line and then images that maybe I've collected um, around those ideas um, prior to writing the poem will kind of fall together. And I, I feel that in order for the poem to kind of have a rhythmic propulsion um, and a kind of structure, I have to have that, like the music of the opening line, however mm-hmm. loose it may be, um, metrically, I'm, I do not write strictly in, in form and meter, although sometimes I've tried um, using um, traditional forms, especially forms of repetition, I find those are those are fun to work with. Um, but usually they're driven they're driven by this this couple you know phrases that start the poem and kind of set it off in terms of um, a loose narrative and and a and a kind of musical tone. Great. I would love to hear you read another poem. Um, you mentioned um, Totem, another poem that we published back in issue 18. Would you mind reading that for us? Absolutely. Um, this is called, uh, the poem I should mention is set in a steel town in England called Corby. Um, and that is where my um, mother was born and I was born. And uh, my parents, emigra- my grandparents emigrated from Scotland to England and lived there. So this is Totem. What was so terribly frightening about the dark wood elephant heads that hung in my grandfather's hall, tusks aligned, trunks slightly upturned at the end as if signaling luck? 
Why was it that I could see nothing auspicious in these ornaments passed on from some outpost or tourist destination, a memory mirage of herds staking out a silk green watering hole? Veterans of heavy labor, of human wars and menageries, our zoo-caged ambassadors of the species sway and shuffle through a single acre, signaling their stress and boredom. Even in sanctuaries, keepers find their charges, turn rogue or run away. Great hooves commanding seismic waves, herd peace punctuated by hit squads, or the hum of heat-seeking shepherd drones. But I knew none of this. I just had to summon nerve each time I climbed the stairs and passed beneath the still gaze of that uncanny pair, captives in an English steel town, spruced up by roses and the rain. Thank you so much for reading that. So you said you wrote this piece when you were at Vermont Studio Center. Yes. And I was just wondering, you know, a piece like this that comes so much from memory that, you know, that almost lives totally in memory. What, what is the thing that makes you sit down and finally make a poem from that memory? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, some memories we have are so visceral, we carry them with us. And this is certainly the case. And they, they kind of um, have this sort of magnetic sense of mystery around them. And I think um, I always wanted to write a poem about this, but it happened that when I was at Vermont Studio Center, I was doing some, you know, eco reading and I was reading about elephants. And um, certainly, um, and then I think I, I began to make the connection um, between um, the, the fear that I had of seeing these elephants as kind of like icons of, of death and also their connection to, to, to violence um, on a larger scale that I didn't quite have the name for as a child. Um, mm. Yeah. So it was kind of like a, a, a magical moment where reading and knowledge that you encounter in the present moment sheds light on um, a memory from the past. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, it really reminded me of uh, when when I was a child, the thing that I did not like to walk past, <laughs> like, like you in the poem, um, was in my great aunt's house, there was a grandfather clock and my sisters and I somehow convinced ourselves that it was very scary. Yeah. And we, we, we would sort of dare each other to, you know, kind of run up to it. And how long could you stand there before you just freaked and ran away? That's hilarious. <laughs> and I think that's a, a great indication of, um, you know, how much children kind of intuit more than we, we tend to think that they do. Like in a sense, like you're, you're picking up on that time itself is scary, right? <laughs> that that yeah. time passes. And, um, I, you know, and even I wonder if you heard that song, My Grandfather's Clock. <laughs> I don't think I have. <laughs> but that's, that's a kind of like very sad song about the passage yeah. of time. Um, and so like, sometimes we, we hear and encounter things that um, maybe we don't remember, but they somehow lodge in our, in our brains when we're very young. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of like what, what prompts fear. Yeah, I think also I'm just thinking um, my great aunt was the nicest, sweetest lady. And I feel like <laughs> there were parts of her house where we usually stayed and where she cooked for us and took care of us. And and then there were parts of the house that felt formal and more old fashioned and like they had been part of other lives. And I think it was like uncomfortable for us. Right. And, and just yeah. that sense that they're like 
these registers of other lives and other times can be can be um, really uncanny. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I, I lived in, in England, I lived in London for, for a couple of years and I just, you know, I love reading anything set in England. Um, but I was also thinking, you know, with, with the recent death of Queen Elizabeth, I feel like we've all been thinking a bit more about these sort of vestiges of empire, like how something like wooden elephant heads aren't really just decoration. They're sort of part of this legacy right. of, um, you know, Britain taking things from other parts of the world and bringing them home and sort of, you know, like you were saying, sort of what actually happens to elephants and to, and to to wild places when they're sort of settled by colonialists. I, I I don't I don't know if I'm putting my things on your poem, but but if you do sort of feel that, can you talk more about that in this poem? Um, yeah, I think the the uh, opportunity to have conversations about the legacy of imperialism um, and imperialism consumerism um, is incredibly important. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't. And it's interesting to me, too, there's a kind of paradoxical um, thing that I noticed that there I've seen pictures of so many people from many walks of life being drawn to um, pay tribute or pay honor to the queen in some ways. Um, the queen is a person is a kind of like icon of of motherhood or an icon of statehood seems um, really attractive to some people. And certainly um, I know uh, my mother's family is, is Irish and they, they lived in, you know, they emigrated to Scotland then they emigrated for England. And those um, migrations are all due to economic need. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are people that, you know, felt in some ways like, at home in England, I guess it was a space that allowed them to survive economically and they struggled to assimilate. And of course, at different periods of time, um, you know, uh, different generations of, of immigrants have different responses to their, to their adopted country. Um, so I was always a little bit mystified that I wouldn't say that they, the, my mother's family was like royalist by any means, but they weren't like anti-royal the way that you would, um, you know, Seamus Heaney has talked about, like right. he never <laughs> wanted to be a poet laureate, right, for, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Um, but they didn't have that sense. And I felt like a lot of it was attributed to um, World War II. My mother was born at the start of, of the Second World War. And mm-hmm. so their sense of the royal family as somehow providing comfort for them in, in some way um, seemed to be uh, something that they held on to, whatever else they knew about what was not right about empire. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that's something that a lot of, I can't really speak to whether that is true for a great majority um, of Britons or members of the Commonwealth, but it does seem that there's a kind of paradoxical um, response that people have. Um, yeah, and I, I definitely feel like uh, it's it's important to to think about how we reframe our our notions and what kinds of restitution um, is due in terms of <laughs> returning plunder, perhaps <laughs> in terms of definitely yeah. thinking about. Um, better uh, ways of being better um, on the social, economic, and, and personal levels, absolutely essential. Yeah. 
I wonder, um, in terms of these poems or, or any of your poems, do you have a certain approach for, for revision, uh, you know, tips or, or methods you usually use, or does it um, sort of come naturally as well? Um, for revision, I usually, poems, I don't usually have poems that um, emerge in a single draft. They usually go through an extensive part of revision. And I'm usually, I'm revising um, on the basis of, um, making sure the language um, matches the opening music that I've set and the, ex- and the narrative or lyrical expectations of the opening of the poem. Um, so sometimes that means cutting a lot of like uh, beautiful language that um, <laughs> you know <laughs> that that sets up exposition um, or where description runs away. Um, that can be um, an issue that I, I'm always mindful of in terms of revision. Um, I think that in um, writing, uh, I talk to a lot of, uh, have a lot of poet friends who write in um, form and meter. My husband um, writes almost exclusively in form and meter. And they talk about um, like really uh, how difficult free verse is to write because um, mm-hmm. you're sort of making it up as you go. In, in many ways, so thinking about the needs of um, the, so- the the sonic features of a line, but also the way syntax helps um, a poem unfold, um, you know, where a need for turns um, in, in thought can be worked in effectively without um, dramatic uh, shifts um, that that undercut the the power of, of a poem's ability to connect with readers. So all those things are um, things that I look out for um, in revision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really share that sort of anxiety about <laughs> the free verse. <laughs> um, just I, I like as a prose writer, I, I like feeling that there's sort of structure structural points I need to hit and. Mm-hmm you know, yeah, just a, a little, I, I like a little bit of rules. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, I love to read free verse. I just would never write it. <laughs> and it's helpful to uh, think about. I love, there's, um, a, a book, um, by, um, Mike Than um, called Structured Surprise. And there's even, um, a, a website that extends the conversations of that book, but the, it's about, um, poetic turns. And there's a lot about poetic turns that, um, you know, it, it, the, the sort of rhetorical turn in a, in, in a poem's, you know, narrative development, or if it's more meditative, it's, it's like argument, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. But it looks at examples of that in, in, in literature at large, different time periods, as well as contemporary practitioners. And I think like that's a lot about thinking about a poem as having a structure, like it wants to do something the way an essay wants to do <laughs> something or a story wants to do something. Um, so often I will say, okay, I'm going to try like the emblem structure, you know, and then you know, like, okay, I'm going to describe um, something, an object, something in the natural world, and then it's going to move to some kind of like revelation of, of what that object reveals. Um, so you have a, a kind of structure to follow. Um, mm-hmm. With the poem like uh, Letter to Emily Bronte, it's a letter, it's going to have a beginning, middle and end. Right. <laughs> so those are ways of kind of getting around thinking structurally, I think can be a way of um, making free verse work powerfully. At least for me. Oh, yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, that does sound much more 
doable to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I also, I mean, of course, I'm just like, I'm so ignorant about the process of writing poetry that I'm sure I imagine that, that things are just totally freewheeling and that just like any writing process, everyone has sort of structures and steps that they're doing. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask, I know you're married to, to p- the poet Ned Balbo, who we've also published in the common. Um, and I'm, I'm always sort of amazed by, by writer couples. Cause I feel like that could either be so helpful and amazing for the writing process or, or, or like really stifling or competitive. Like there's a lot of ways it could go wrong. <laughs> so I wonder, you know, how, like, how is it helpful to you? How have you enjoyed it? Oh, it's a tremendous help. And I mean, I think that, yeah, the stories of where it goes wrong are, are really powerful and 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 frightening and certainly um, the most common one that people think of is like the story of Plath and Hughes right which is mm-hmm. completely tragic when you when you read her letters and see um, the the challenges that they they were facing both as artists and um, people trying to raise two very small children um, and just how that the pressures those external pressures um, really became um, uh, you know, destructive and implosive. Um, but for, for me, um, it's great, um, to have someone to read your work. Um, Ned's a terrific reader of my poems. Um, so he's, he's always the first reader and he will not, you know, when you are, uh, so close to someone, um, uh, like uh, a married couple, you are uh, that that kind of intimacy filters into a kind of honesty um, in terms of your work. So um, you're not going to have a kind of uh, missed opportunity for someone to point out uh, where you need to where a poem's not working, for example, very frankly. So um, that's very helpful. In terms of I've also, Ned's been a great person to suggest things that I often overlook as subject matter for a poem. Um, Like, why haven't you written about that? Um, So, (laughs) uh, for example, we were watching an X-Files episode one night and there was a flash of an FBI building. And um, I mentioned like going on a tour of the FBI is a Girl Scout. And he said, that would be a great poem. You know, so we have that kind of exchange, both in terms of um, helping each other generate ideas and also um, doing the, the kind of work of giving feedback. Um, Ned also like likes to play music. He's been recording songs on Bandcamp. So mm-hmm. for me, one of the things that that's done, I'm, I love music, but don't play. <laughs> um, and so it's been interesting for me to think about what, it, what responding to a song can teach you about the art of listening. So that's something that's been really cool. And, um, you know, for our listeners who think that, that visiting the FBI as a Girl Scout sounds like a great poem, that poem is also in the common. <laughs> um, and, and I think it was issue three. So back way back in the day. Yeah. So uh, just one last question for you. Uh, what are you working on now? What's next? You mentioned the Emily Bronte book. Is that sort of your main project right now? Yeah, right now I'm putting the finishing touches on um, the book and I'm awesome. calling it the badass Brontes. The title poem um, was, it. <laughs> uh, it can be found online. It was in Hopkins Review. And um, it, that's a poem where I kind of like do the reinvention of imagining the Brontes as contemporary figures and, um, you know, who are kind of superhero-like. Um, there's mm. other poems in that that are more um, conventional or traditional um, persona poems or 
um, dramatic monologues based on historical, actual historical events. I'm also working on um, another uh, book of poems that's uh, eco-poetry, which was kind of um, inspired by the work of, of the Bronte sisters in some way. Um, Totem is an example of, of that direction where I'm really trying to um, lament ecological crisis, but also celebrate um, the wonders of, of the planet um, and look closely at the creatures, whether they're plants or animals that are in my own ecotone. Uh, that sounds great. Um, I can't wait for your Bronte book. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, Jane Satterfield, thank you so much for joining us and making time to talk with us. It's been, been really great it talking great with you. It was great to talk to you, Emily. Hope you get to go to VSC again. I hope so too. <laughs> Listeners, you can read Jane's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org. <laughs>